0: Patrons and welcome to this week's alternate timeline. Today we are talking about aliens. Um, this week's episode of Flash Forward was about contact, first contact with alien life, and it was really fun to make. And I have a ton of stuff for you for this bonus podcast because I had to cut a ton of really great stuff from the episode just so it wasn't like two hours long. <laughs> so um I'm excited to share these extras with you here. So um yeah, let's just dive right into it. So before I get into the stuff that I cut from the episode, I just want to talk a little bit about kind of like, um, I guess the behind the scenes ethics of covering something like the Venus paper um, and how to kind of cover something fairly when the jury is still out on whether it's right or not um, and kind of be ethical in the sense that like I'm not saying anything that's wrong, but also kind of like leaving the door open to what might happen in terms of reanalysis and stuff like that. So um, When the Venus, the Phosphine paper first came out, it was a big deal in the press, obviously, um, and the New York Times did this big, long story about it. But I also immediately saw some researchers on Twitter kind of being like, uh, this doesn't really look quite right. Um, You know, there are some elements of the paper that are a little weird like just some small, like inconsistencies basically within the paper about data and and sort of terms and what they're talking about. Um, some folks in the field are very harsh about this paper, sort of saying that it was bad and it should, have been pub- should not have been published. Other people like Mike are sort of a lot more generous and say like, hey, this is interesting and we should look into it and we should figure out what's going on here. Um, and I wanted to give Clara a chance to talk about this work and explain it without sort of setting her up for feeling like she was you know, walking into some sort of like takedown or like gotcha moment while also kind of conveying that like we still don't know if their team is right or not. And evidence is kind of mounting that maybe this isn't quite what they thought it was. Um, And so there's a lot of things to balance there. And um, I hope that I struck that balance decently well. I hope that you got the sense that like this is interesting, but not necessarily true. Um, And again, like this is how science works, right? You have theories and then you test them and people have to reanalyze data. Um, and that's sort of how it goes. Um, but it was something I thought a lot about on the episode in terms of like how to present the first section of the show. So, um, so yeah, that's just a little behind the scenes of thinking, um, onto stuff that I actually cut, like tape I cut. You're going to about to hear from a bunch of people. So the first thing that I had to cut was something that Mike talked about. Um, and he told me this really interesting thing about analyzing the atmospheres of exoplanets, looking for biosignatures, um, and you heard in the episode, you know, this conversation about like should we look for water? Should we look for phosphine? Should like what should we be looking for? Um but he Mike talked a little bit about some research that says that like we shouldn't look for specific molecules at all. Instead, we should be looking at sort of the overall composition of the atmosphere as a whole and in fact not like the in, not even like the types of molecules that are there, but the interaction between those molecules. So, here's Mike.
1: Well, let me tell you about something that's been intriguing me very recently about um, biosignatures, uh, which is that there may be a way to try to look for biosignatures more agnostically, and by that I mean without any baked-in assumptions about what that life should be like. Uh, And this comes from network theory. So um, if you look at life... Uh, like I said, uh, one, one of the pillars of life or life of the why is this learning pillar that life is always soaking in information and trying to use that information to benefit itself and when 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 systems contain a lot of information they tend to be non-random and they tend to contain a lot of internal structure and complexity and if you, Look at life from the perspective of a planetary process, and think about the types of um, the types of systems that might emerge at not the individual or even the molecular scale, but at the global and biosphere level scale. Maybe you can detect. A sign of life in the network of chemistry that is occurring on that planet and in that planet's atmosphere. And if that network of chemistry looks non-random, it may be a sign of a global biosphere.
0: So... If you picture one of those like network diagrams that you might have seen before, um, you know, the kind of have like all the little dots and one like lines showing connections between those dots. Um, you might have seen this in the, in the context of like a picture of various social media accounts and how they interact with each other or a picture of like the connections between famous people. If you've ever seen like, you know, 10 degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever that is, you know. That's like a network diagram, right? And scientists think that maybe if they can make a map of the overall chemical interactions on a planet's atmosphere, they might be able to see the type of network that suggests life, no matter what the actual molecules are. And when you do this for our solar system, if you look at our solar system and the planets of our solar system, Earth's network looks super different from other planets.
1: Yeah, so the paper that came out in I think it was 2004 showed that Ner- showed that earth's network was what's what's called in, in 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 this network science arena scale-free or follows a power law distribution. And without getting into what that means specifically, it's interesting to note that many biological networks like metabolic networks and even social networks Follow the same kind of structure or distribution, uh, whereas the planets of the, whereas the non-living planets of our solar system—Venus, Earth, Mars—sorry, not Earth, <laughs> Venus, Titan, Jupiter, and uh, uh, and Mars—did uh, not have that same kind of network distribution. They were more of a random network, um, not governed by any kind of uniform uniformly. Uh, uh, information theory kind of structure.
0: And this is so fascinating. Um, but the problem with this is actually kind of the same problem with so many of the theories and ideas around how to detect alien life, which is that scientists have these really cool theories, um, but they don't quite yet have the tools to test them out.
1: Honestly, we are kind of just at that point right now where we can no longer take next steps because we're limited by our technology. Um, We don't yet have telescopes powerful enough to try to find biosignatures on the worlds that I just described, worlds that orbit in the habitable zones of their stars and are small like Earth. Um, So most of our uh, uh, techniques for trying to characterize Different planets are biased towards planets that orbit very close to their host stars and that are really big. Those are just the planets that are easiest to find and easiest to get data from. Um, And so hopefully with the next generation of telescopes, um, both in space and being built here on the ground, we'll finally be able to characterize the atmospheres of tiny little planets like the Earth. And if you think about it, Earth is actually, as as far as planets go, pretty small and also has a very thin atmosphere. And so it's actually very difficult to try to figure out what's in that atmosphere um, from so far away. And so we're really looking forward to the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which I think is scheduled to launch next October, October 2021, although the the launch date has been moved back and back and back over the many years um, so fingers crossed knocking all the wood around uh, that, that 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 will actually uh, come to be and then also these various what we call extremely large telescopes because we're really creative in astronomy uh, <laughs> that we're being that we're building around the world extremely large what that basically means is uh, diameters of the telescope around 30 meters or so.
0: So the next generation of tools and telescopes might allow researchers to better understand this stuff. Um, But just to bring things back to an earlier episode, a lot of them are kind of nervous about the ways in which the satellite constellations that SpaceX and others are putting up, um, because those satellite constellations might actually make this work harder, right? It might make the work of looking out to an exoplanet uh, in a distant galaxy harder because there's all this sort of like light pollution basically in the atmosphere from these satellites. satellite constellations. Um, We talked about that on the episode Goodnight Night Night earlier this year. So it kind of connects to this work too. Um, Another thing that I cut was from Jamie Green, who talked about this really interesting theory that even if we were to find microbes on Venus, we might not actually be able to say that they are aliens.
2: So one of the big challenges with finding life on Venus or on Mars is that In the earlier eons of the solar system, there was a lot of uh, sort of exchange of material between these three planets. We were all getting bombarded a lot, and that would sometimes shoot rocks off of one planet's surface, and they would spin around the solar system a little, and then they would land on one of the other planets. You know, there are Mars rocks that have been found on Earth, and, and it goes in all those directions. And so when we talk about life on Mars or life on Venus, it's very possible that it originated on one of those planets and then bounced around and ended up somewhere else. And if so if we find life, if we find microbes on Mars or Venus that is chemically identical to life on Earth, there's no way to know if, it, if it's one origin that bounced around or if it happened independently. And to me, the big question about life on Earth, or the big question about life is, is this the only time that it happened? Or is this something that happens often, the origin of life? If we find life on Europa or in another solar system, it's far enough away that we'll know these were independent origins. And then that takes it from this happened once to this happened more than once. And if it can happen twice, as far as I'm concerned, it can happen a lot of times. But that's one of the huge questions, just like once or a lot of times.
0: Now, this idea is controversial, and we didn't really have time to talk about it on the show because it does require some caveats. Not everybody agrees about this. Not everybody agrees that there is a chance that some theoretical life in the clouds of Venus could actually be related genetically to life on Earth. But it does raise something that lots of people are worried about um, and that isn't really debated, which is that when we send probes, we could accidentally be seeding other worlds with life, sort of like almost an invasive species, right? So if scientists were to find microbes on Mars, the first thing they would have to do is make sure that, like, the Mars rover did not accidentally transport those microbes from Earth. And that would be a whole process of figuring it out. Um, I also wanted to include a section in the episode that explicitly talked about indigenous science fiction relating to alien contact. But again, there was like no time. Um, I got so much stuff. So one of the fictional sketches that you heard in the episode was inspired by some of that indigenous sci-fi. And um, there's one piece that I want to shout out in particular by Lou Cornham, who I am a huge fan of, called The Space Indian Star Map. Um, I, w- I will link to it in the show notes. And um, it just so happens that Michael Reagan actually loves this piece as well. And he had it up on his computer um, when we spoke. And I asked him a question about something and he recognized. Referenced it, So I had asked him a question about consent and this idea of like, what if, um, we found alien life, but that alien life made it super clear that it did not want to talk to us or even like be observed by us. It did not want to be experimented on. It did not want us to be looking at it. Um, and I sort of asked him like, do you think that humans could resist, could obey that, uh, request from alien life?
3: That's a great question. And my mind is just slightly elsewhere, which is that in the in Lucornam's piece called Space Indian, they write, um, we do not travel to the distant reaches of space in order to plant our flags or act under the assumption that every planet in our sights is a terra nullius waiting for the first human footprint to mark its surface. And I just always go back to that line. Uh, I love that that particular piece. But consent is a really great question when it comes to encountering uh, the other in space. You know, when we meet life elsewhere um, and they don't want us around, you know, I think we have to respect that. Um, I'm not sure if there's any argument we could make other than we should always respect the wishes of the life we encounter. One of the problems is we don't do that now, so um, we regularly, uh, imprison human and non-human life, regularly kill human and non-human life. And uh, we don't respect the consent of humans or non-human life on earth today. So we need to learn how to do that, um, in order to respectfully encounter life elsewhere. I get, I definitely get pushback on this, <laughs> which you can imagine. Um, if I go to a, uh, a space science conference and I tell astrobiologists and biologists that they should think about whether the life they're encountering wants to be sampled. You know, obviously they say, well, how am I supposed to do my work? I think the challenge of how to do scientific work with consent involving both humans and non-human life is an important challenge. And if we face it well, We could develop new ways of doing science that are less harmful, less extractive, and that respect uh, the life that we're encountering.
0: Michael and I talked for like two hours and there was so much interesting stuff in there. Um, And he and I actually turns out have like a lot of similar interests um, in things like uh, what we should or shouldn't be doing to animals with technology, which I know you all have heard me talk about ad nauseum on the show. Um, So it was a really fun conversation. Um, Okay. And then the last thing that I will play for you, the stuff that I cut, is that I did ask every person that I talked to what their favorite science fiction that involves aliens is. And I just want to play for you what they all had to say. So consider this like a little reading list or a watch list or a book list. And I'll link to all of them in the show notes again. So here's what people said. I grew up watching Star Trek, and that's probably the biggest source of information I have here. Like I, I haven't consumed much other science fiction. I used to I used to pretend to be a Vulcan all the time. like i I've had those little things you could put on your ears to make them pointy. and I would go around, like, holding people's heads as if I were mind melding with them. <laughs> and, and I just love the idea of being so logical and not emotional and being able to control my emotions because I was a very angry child. And so that's probably um, pure, purely for nostalgia reasons, one of my favorite aliens.
1: So anybody who knows me knows that I am a big Trekkie. Um, so I definitely have to go with Star Trek. Um, and I, I really love the weird aliens in Star Trek um, the the ones that kind of you know are are out, outside the box um and the reason is because uh just going back to life as we don't know it life with a why it's like uh, these this is where science fiction can really help science I think in helping us imagine other possibilities um, and so I think that the the silicon-based life form the Horta from the original series is one of my favorites and also the Borg from Star Trek the Next Generation and the subsequent iterations of Star Trek is really fascinating because they learn about the cosmos in a very different way than we do um, and and again learning is one of those pillars of life uh, and there may be many different forms of learning out there uh the the way the borg do it by assimilating other creatures is very uh, akin to say like horizontal gene transfer where you just like take somebody else's dna take take their knowledge and make it a part of your own Um, and uh that is fascinating i think there are just endless possibilities in science fiction and i can almost guarantee it that reality will be even stranger than that
2: can i cut it down to two yeah okay I want to say two. Um, the first is, um, they're they're both books. the The first is the Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, which is very simply, in some ways, a story about humans going to another planet and humans make contact with aliens. Where we caught a whiff of their signal. It was music, and in in what I think is just such a Perfect innovation in this book, um, she thought to herself. Well, who goes in and makes contact and doesn't care what any Earth government says? It's the Jesuits. And so, while er- the earthly governments are like figuring out what they're going to do, the Jesuits get a ship and they get together a crew and they go because, as she says in the book, they wanted to know God's children. And what's there's there's so much that is fascinating and amazing in that book. But in terms of imagining aliens. The planet turns out to have two sentient species and the relationship between them is just is one of those really thorough, thoughtful sort of thought experiments that's completely developed into into this whole world. The other one that I want to mention is um, Star Maker by Olaf Stapleton, which for people who sort of are plugged into the looking for aliens world might ring a bell because it gets mentioned a lot in the context of Dyson spheres. Should I explain what Dyson spheres are? <laughs> okay, so Dyson spheres um, are a concept made famous by Freeman Dyson. The He did so many things, mathematician, physicist, I don't, I don't know. But um, the idea that when you are extremely technologically advanced, you could basically have a it's usually like a, a fleet of tiny satellites surrounding a star, absorbing all of the star's energy because you would want that much energy energy to power your super technological civilization. And Dyson always credits Star Maker as where he got the idea from, from this novel. Um, and so I had always assumed that Star Maker was a novel about some aliens who have a Dyson sphere, you know, like sort of hard sci-fi thing. But it actually is this incredibly lyrical, sweeping view of imagining the entire cosmos and all these different kinds of alien life. It's becoming very clear to me as I'm talking that what I like are interesting, like, you know, world building and like, it could be like this, it could be like that, maybe it's like this. Um, And it's, it gets very sort of big and spiritual. And it was written I think in 1939 by a British writer and it's like explicitly about fighting fascism it's explicitly about this is what humanity needs to see in order to get through this dark moment and it it like feels like it evokes for me the idea from a wrinkle in time of shadowed worlds like worlds that are fighting to not succumb to the darkness um and it's just like such a trippy huge book and so beautifully written and i just it was such a surprising discovery when i read it because i was like oh it'll be a book about dyson spheres and it was just like so much more than that sure yeah i think i
4: have two um i think you know i really did enjoy arrival i thought it was wonderful i thought the movie was good i thought that the short story was excellent i mean so i really really appreciated that one i liked how alien they were and i liked how it destabilized that idea of time. I thought that was really valuable, and it just kind of pointed to the notion that um, that the, you can't even take the fundamentals for granted, right? Um, and that and and i i loved how they kind of showed how difficult it was to get to any of that information as well um and watching the linguistic process i thought i thought that was nicely done um and just uh and the inevitable misunderstandings and conflicts over interpretation i thought that was really realistic i appreciated that um i also really liked the sparrow um and uh children of god so that um that set by uh, Mary Doria Russell. It's probably no coincidence because she was an anthropologist. So <laughs> before she started You're the to write. Person to say that, <laughs> I'm sure that I am. <laughs> Ask an anthropologist about aliens. What do you get? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, 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 Do you know Jamie Green? She's writing a book about aliens. You probably like yeah. that, She also said the
4: sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah well it's it's excellent and i mean it's a compelling character study as well but it also so much just turns on this this misunderstanding um of who it was that that uh, the humans who ventured forth were talking to and i also liked how it um kind of suggested that uh, if a mission was to be sent, well, who has the resources? And the suggestion in that case was, well, the Vatican. (laughs) So I appreciated that as well. It's like, no reason why it has to be NASA that goes first, right? (laughs) So, yeah, so those are my favorites.
1: It's a hard one because I love science
3: fiction so much and I like thinking about alien life and I find it all so fascinating that I don't want to uh, I don't want to tell you the wrong one <sighs> because they're just all so interesting. Hmm. A great depiction of extraterrestrial life and intelligence is um, Stanislaw Lem's uh, Oceanic Life in Solaris, for example, where you have an entire planet. Something that looks like nature might be thought of as an ecosystem or might be called an ocean, but is actually intelligent and alive. I like the idea in science fiction that life takes forms that we might ignore or that we might otherwise look past or that might not look at all like us. So I find that very interesting. A really basic popular cultural depiction of an alien life that's kind of interesting um, despite all of its problems, is actually E.T. Because E.T. is a botanist um, who comes to Earth looking for plants. And I find that very interesting. <laughs> this is uh, maybe weird and geeky. I don't know. I, As a kid, I was very terrified by E.T. because I found the movie to be very scary. But later on, I read a novelization that talked about what happens when E.T. returns home. And I found that really fascinating because it turned out that ET was from a society of botanists who who live on a planet where plants are sentient and where they recognize this, and that ET's ship was full of different plant species that they live in uh, symbiosis with, and they have this kind of collaborative relationship with all of the plants on their planet. I found that very interesting. Have you ever heard the poem uh, by Diane Ackerman, We Are Listening? Have you ever seen that? I'll just read that to you real quick. Um, I like it so much and it's sitting here on my wall and I was just thinking, oh, well, that's something I wanna share with you. We are listening. As our metal eyes awake to absolute night where whispers fly from the beginning of time, we cup our ears to the heavens. We are listening. On the volcanic lips of Flagstaff and in the fields beyond Boston, in a great array that blooms like coral from the desert floor, on high-wire webs patrolled by computer spiders in Puerto Rico. We are listening for a sound beyond us, beyond sound, searching for a lighthouse in the breakwaters of our uncertainty, an electronic murmur, a bright, fragile I am, small as tree frogs Staking out one end of an endless swamp, we are listening through the longest night, we imagine, which dawns between the life and times of stars.
0: Okay. So that is the stuff that I cut from the episode. Tons of stuff. The episode, again, like, could have very easily been two hours long, um, but we only had an hour. I really do try to keep episodes to about an hour. Um, every so often I get an email from somebody who um, complains that the episodes are too long. Um, the first season of the show, as you may know if you've been around for a while, was really short episodes, like 20 minutes long. And as the show has gotten older, it's also gotten longer, episodes have gotten longer, um, and every so often people complain and they say, like, I missed the 20-minute episode. So, um maybe, maybe next season we'll do a couple shorter ones, but, um, I don't know. I just have a lot to say about a lot of things. And I always try to talk to a lot of people in that first season. We also only ever talked to like one or two people per episode, not, you know, for this episode, it was like five or six people. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, let me let me think if you want the shorter ones back. Okay. And then at the end, uh, a little secret. Um, we recently purchased a new ball for my dog, which is actually a rarity because she doesn't, like new things she likes the balls she wants to play with are the ones that are like it's actually just half of a ball that she found in the dog park and it's probably you know been buried and reburied several times and that's what she wants she doesn't like new stuff we bought her i needed to get free shipping on something so i bought i just like threw an extra ball in the uh cart and it's um spiky and pink and uh my partner has been calling it her coronavirus and so um Everywhere she goes, Robert will be like, Oh, Morrow brought coronavirus to bed today. <laughs> so that's that's it. That's the exciting thing that's happening in our house. It's pretty boring over here. Okay, um that is all for this bonus podcast. And um I will be back in your ears soon. There are two more episodes left of the season. Um in uh about a week and a half on the 22nd and then there's one episode in january and then as usual i take a break um but julia and i will be hard at work during that break um doing stuff for the new season um and some new exciting book stuff is coming we should i should be getting actual books in the mail relatively soon so there's lots of stuff on that front and um you'll hear all about it in upcoming episodes um thanks for being here. (laughs) How do I usually end these? Oh God. Um, it's been a long day already and it's not even that late. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I will talk to you all soon. Bye.